Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash counselor toolbox to register. Welcome to Enhancing Motivation for Change in Substance Abuse Treatment, based on Tip 35, brought to you by allceus.com. In this course, we're going to learn a little bit about motivational interviewing, describe the frames approach to motivational interviewing, review the stages of change and different motivational interviewing techniques that we can use within each stage, and how to integrate motivational approaches. Motivation is a key to change. It's multidimensional, dynamic and fluctuating, influenced by social interactions, modifiable, influenced by your style, and it's purposeful. Let's go back and look at each one of those. It's the key to change. Motivation is what gets us up in the morning. We have to have motivation to do anything. It's multidimensional, though. You can be emotionally motivated to do something, but too physically exhausted to do it. Or you can be physically motivated to do something, but your heart's just not in it. You're just kind of really not there. So we need to have that head, heart, and gut honesty and head, heart, and gut motivation in our clients. They need to logically understand the benefits to doing it. They need to want to do it in their heart. There needs to be an emotional component. And they need to be able to do it. There needs to be a physical component. Can they stay clean, can they find recovery and be physically able to function if they have chronic pain, if they have mental issues that require medication. These are all things that we need to help them address in order to help them succeed. Motivation is dynamic and fluctuating. You may have, and we've all done this, when we set a resolution we're gung-ho and woohoo, we're going to do it. And then when it gets hard, we start thinking, you know, maybe this really isn't necessary right now. Because change is hard. It requires effort, and sometimes it's painful, physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever. 
so our motivation waxes and wanes based on the rewards of what's happening at the present time. It's influenced by social interactions. Social interactions are one of the greatest buffers against stress. They're also one of the greatest motivators, which is why when people want to make a change, a lot of times they get into the buddy system. If you have positive people on your side, you will be more likely to be motivated to make that positive change. If you've got negative people on your side or people who don't want you to change, they're going to emphasize all the reasons not to change and steer that person away from changing. Motivation can be modified. In treatment, one of the first things we say is change people, places, and things. We need to get rid of those negative social interactions. We need to set up the environment for a positive, healthy lifestyle. But we also need to look at the reasons this person wants to change. They may be somewhat ambivalent right now, but let's pull on those strengths, pull on those reasons why that person might want to change. Maybe things they haven't even thought about yet. And it can be influenced by your style. If you tend to be a negative Nelly, then that person's probably not going to be as motivated. If you are a good cheerleader without being overboard, and you encourage them, you affirm what's going on with them, you empathize, you really form a strong therapeutic partnership, you're going to have a great success. It can also be motiv people can also be motivated by certain transference reactions. So not only your style, but simply your presence may help or hinder the relationship. And you've got to look at some of those issues that might be going on. If you're sensing that there's a transference reaction, especially if it's hindering the situation and hindering the person's motivation to change. Motivation is also purposeful. You don't get motivated to do nothing. You get motivated for a purpose, to make a positive change, hopefully a positive one. So what's the point? Why do we want to enhance motivation? Well, we want our clients to succeed. We want to inspire them to change. We want to prepare them to enter treatment. One of the first steps is moving clients from pre-contemplation, where they don't even think they have a problem, to being willing to consider the fact that there might be something to what you have to say. As we enhance their motivation and their sense of self-efficacy, they may be more willing to look at the fact that there's a problem. Okay, I'll admit there's a problem. But if I believe that I can fix the problem, if I, the client, believe that I have the ability to fix the problem, I'm going to be better equipped and more willing to admit that there's a problem. If we enhance motivation, we also engage and retain clients in treatment more. If they're motivated to come see you, then they're going to stay in treatment longer. If they're motivated to do what you ask them to do, then they're going to be more, as we say, treatment compliant. So you have to present the information, present the tasks, present the sessions in a way that's meaningful to them. 
Think about when you're dealing with children and you ask them to do something and they say, why? And you think to yourself, because I said so, and that doesn't help any. That doesn't motivate them to do what you ask them to do, necessarily. Children want to know why. Everybody wants to know why. What's the point of me doing this? What's the benefit? What's the intended gain? Why is it worth my effort? Don't just hand clients busy work. Help them understand the rationale behind what you ask them to do. When I was working in community mental health, that was something that we often talked about. And I told everyone who came through my clinic, if you have a question about why we're asking you to do something, ask us. Because there is a reason, there's a motivation, there is a purpose behind everything we ask you to do in residential treatment. And you may not see the reason right now, but if you ask, I'm more than happy to tell you. This was one way of opening up a dialogue between myself and the clients. And it also helped them see the greater nuances. For example, chores. Why did they have to do chores? They didn't want to do chores. They wanted me to clean up after them, and <laughs> I didn't want to. The basic premise of chores was taking responsibility for their own environment, cleaning up after themselves, taking care of themselves, and putting themselves in a position where when they got out of treatment, they would be able to take care of themselves and do the daily tasks that they had to do. We also wanted them to take pride in their environment. We wanted them to feel comfortable and also be willing to show off the environment to family when they came to visit. You're also going to improve your treatment outcomes. If a client's motivated to stay in treatment, if they're motivated to do what you ask them, which hopefully is engaging in a lot of self-reflection for them, they're going to have better treatment outcomes. If they do the next right thing, they're probably going to get from point A to point B. But it also allows you to encourage them to come back to treatment the minute they start having a recurrence of symptoms. It's not a failure. Quite the opposite. If you recognize that you're starting down that slippery slope, that's a victory because you're not relapsing. You are catching yourself. You're seeing your stinking thinking. You are seeing your old ways start to rear their ugly heads, and you're stepping in and intervening before it becomes a full-blown relapse. That's a huge victory. And if we can affirm these things and encourage our clients to take responsibility and give that extra little bit of effort, they will have much greater success, as will we. And we also want to create a therapeutic partnership in here. With motivational interviewing, you're not fixing a client. You're empowering a client to make positive changes to improve their life. You're there for guidance along the way. You're there to help them learn new tools as they need. You're help there to help them get through the tough points, to be their cheerleader. But you're not fixing them. This is not the pathological, you're broken, 
and I'm going to fix you sort of model that we've ascribed to for so long. So what does it take to be a motivational counselor? You've got to be warm and friendly. Well, that goes without saying. Who's going to be motivated by a drill sergeant? Genuine. One of the things I learned earliest on in working with substance abuse clients is that they were extraordinarily perceptive. You have to be genuine. If you are trying to blow smoke, they are going to blow it right back. If you think that they are not working their hardest and you try to support them and say, oh, yeah, I think you're doing a great job, they're going to know. They're going to see right through if you're not being genuine in what you're saying. But genuineness is one of the things that we want to teach them because they need to learn to be honest with themselves as well as with you. So, yeah, you're not going to be extraordinarily blunt in everything that you say. But if you have something to say, if you think there's a point to be made and it's clinically appropriate, then you need to put that out there respectfully. This is what I am seeing in your behavior. I've noticed that lately you seem to blah, 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 blah. Own it. State it. Keep it objective. But that will help the client see behaviors or actions or things that they may be doing or saying that they're not aware of. It models awareness, teaches them self-awareness, and it also teaches them effective confrontation skills. Affirm what they're doing. I recognize that this must have been a huge step for you to take to come in here today. I hear that you've been wrestling with this for years now. So it must have been very difficult to take the step to come into counseling. Um, you're going to have a lot of probably in community mental health, involuntary clients, clients that come in because of the court system, affirming the fact that they don't want to be there. I realize you don't want to be here. Your main priority right now is getting rid of me. I understand that. Nobody's fooling anybody here. But we need to work together to figure out how we can accomplish what I need you to accomplish, which is staying clean and hopefully recognizing some of the problems that are keeping you in the system. And we can also work towards your goal, which is getting rid of me. You stay clean. You stay engaged in treatment. You'll get rid of me in 8 to 10 weeks. Whereas if we fight each other, it's going to be a long road. And empathize. Affirming and empathy kind of go hand in hand, but you're going to empathize with them. It's hard. And yeah, they might not want to give up the alcohol, the drugs, the whatever. There was a benefit, and we'll talk about this more later. But people and living beings, animals, whatever, don't do things when the costs outweigh the benefit. So you've got to look back at what they were doing and say, what was so beneficial about this? Why were you doing this? Because until you address all the reasons that it was beneficial, 
you're not going to have a whole lot of success at convincing them that it's not beneficial. So the first step is to focus on their strengths. They came, hopefully they showed up for their first session and they were clean. If they have a job, if they have housing, if they have a support system, if they've been going to meetings, what are their strengths? Are they intelligent? Are they skillful? Are they whatever? Some clients, initially, you're going to have to work on identifying strengths. But everybody's got strengths. They may not be using those strengths for the best purposes. If you can get them to divert those energies towards recovery-based behaviors instead of criminal behaviors, you're going to be on the right road. Affirm their abilities to, to succeed. You can get through this. Yeah, it's going to suck. If the patient is clearly indicating they don't want to be there or that they're afraid it's going to be hard, tell them, yeah. If you think that it's going to be hard, which it usually is if they're actually working the program, there are times that it's really horrid and you're going to want to stop. But you can get through it because you've gotten through other situations before. Work with the client to identify other hardships, other times that they've had to do things that they haven't wanted to do, or that have been hard, or that have hurt. We've all gone through those periods. Help them identify theirs and the skills and tools they used at that point in time to get out of it. Try not to be too authoritative. Motivational interviewing empowers the client. As soon as you start becoming a drill sergeant, telling them what to do, when to do it, then it becomes more about you fixing them again. You want to help lead them to the answers. You want to help teach them the tools and empower them to figure out what to pull out of their toolbox when. Recognize co-occurring disorders. You are not going to have a successful client if you are not addressing all of his biopsychosocial needs. This goes back to this multidimensional concept. If they are not getting their basic needs met, if they are not mentally stable, emotionally stable, in safe housing or some sort of safe environment, you know, whatever you say really doesn't amount to a whole hill of beans. So make sure that their basic issues are tended to. They have an adequate supply of any medications they need. They have safe housing. They have food. They have transportation to and from treatment. Now, you can't necessarily always provide transportation. I realize that. But help them brainstorm ways to get to treatment, to remain treatment compliant, and if there's something that happens where they can't get to treatment, what do they do? Can they go to a meeting? What is a stopgap? And how often are those stopgaps tolerable? They can't always go to meetings in lieu of coming to treatment. What would you accept, though, in order to not start looking at maybe some resistance issues or having to report them to their parole officer or whatever? Employ client-centered treatment. Listen to them. 
listen to their goals, their hopes, their dreams, where they want to be in five years. This is about individualized treatment. This is about recognizing their strength and their value as a human being and respecting their autonomy, their ability to make choices. Not all of our clients are going to make choices we agree with. And provided they're not against the law, we pretty much have to work within what that client wants to do. We may not agree. We may see that it's a bad road and they're going to be right back in detox or whatever. But at a certain point, we have to let them try. If they think they're finished with treatment, they're cured, and they are just bound and determined that it's over, no amount of us telling them they have to stay is going to help them. We have to respect their ability to choose, step them down to the next level of care, and see. I'm thrilled when a client proves me wrong. When I think, you know, that person's not going to last two weeks in the step-down treatment. And they do. They don't only last two weeks. They last two years or 20 years. Does my heart good? I don't mind being wrong if that's how I'm being wrong. So we have to let them venture out on their own. But that also goes back to leaving the door open, not viewing it and making them feel like a failure for going out and, you know, maybe falling down again. We help them get back up. We help them learn from their situation, and we help them move on. Everything should be a growth experience. There are certain elements in current motivational approaches. That includes the frames approach, decisional balance exercises, helping clients develop discrepancies between their goals and their behaviors, flexible pacing, and personal contact with clients. The frames approach is the most basic component. F stands for feedback. We need to provide them objective, measurable feedback regarding their personal risk or impairment. They may hear it. They may deny it. Whatever. We need to provide it to them in a way that's meaningful and understandable to them, not jargony, not the world is going to end if you take another drink. Be realistic and objective. R stands for responsibility. It's not our responsibility to change them. It's their responsibility to change. So we need to help them feel like they have the ability to change once they have the responsibility. A is for advice. And we can give, we always shy away from that word in counseling. Counselors don't give advice. Well, you know, they had to find an A word. We can give suggestions. We can give tools. This goes back again to not being too authoritative. We don't want to tell them, in this situation, you do this. But we can say, you have this variety of tools here. In this situation, what would work best for you? Or let's role play this relapse situation and see what feels best for you. M stands for menus of self-directed change options and treatment alternatives. Jim Bob may not think he needs residential, 
even though the ASAM says he needs residential, the LOCUS says he needs residential, his PO says he needs residential, all of the objective and subjective evidence points to the fact that he needs residential. But he's bound and determined that it's going to be intensive outpatient because he wants to keep his job and he doesn't want to be away from his family for that long. You can force him into residential, which he will probably promptly leave against medical advice unless the probation officer or unless you have somebody else that has more power than you that can force the issue. But even then, you're not going to get wonderful compliance if he feels like he's being forced into something. So you want to provide him with a variety of options. Intensive outpatient is possible, maybe, provided, okay, if you are determined to do this, what stop gaps do we need? What, where's our safety net? What do you do during those times when you're not in group and you're starting to feel antsy to go out and use? Another issue with menus that I used to use with my clients is that I don't want to know what you're not going to do issue. I would have clients that would come in and say, I am not going to 12-step meetings. I am not doing this. I am not doing that. And that was usually before hello. And so we'd sit down and I'd say, you know, I hear that you have a lot of ideas about what I'm going to tell you you have to do. And some of them I may have to tell you to do based on court requirements or whatever. But anything that I'm not required to make you do, we can talk about. And it doesn't really do us a lot of good for you to tell me what you're not going to do. Tell me what you are going to do instead. If you're not going to go to 12-step meetings, what will you do instead? Church. Some people have a church where they have a support group, which is not necessarily as strongly 12-step based. Some people don't like NA. They won't go to NA, but they'll go to AA or vice versa. Work with your client to develop a menu of change options that they're willing to do because it doesn't make any difference how many things you can come up with if they're not willing to do them. And keep reinforcing the client's self-efficacy. You have the ability to make choices that are going to either help or hurt you. And you could go either way, so you need to think, what's the next right thing? You've survived this long making choices. So clearly, you're doing something right. Let's see if we can get it so you're right and you're happy. Decisional balance is simply weighing the pros and cons. But if you've ever made a pro and con list, you know that all elements, all things that you put are not necessarily equal. Some pros or some cons are a much bigger deal than other pros and cons. So one way you can approach it is to give your client a big old bag of marbles and have them have two buckets. And for each pro, they can write it down on a piece of paper and put one marble for each 
whatever unit you want to use, for how much it matters. So does something matter one marble, or does something matter 10 marbles? At the end, you'll have two buckets, ostensibly full of marbles. And each bucket will have a list, the pro list and the con list. And then you can look at your weighted comparison of your pros and cons. You may only have four things on the pro list, but there are four very, very, very heavily weighted things that end up showing that there's more pros than cons. Help clients recognize the difference between their current behaviors and their future goals. As Dr. Phil would say, and how's that working for you? You want to help clients see, you know, close your eyes, think to yourself, if I weren't using drugs, or if I weren't depressed, or if I weren't whatever, what would be different? Or have them close their eyes and think, where do they want to be realistically five years from now, or even one year from now? Once they can articulate that, then you can work backwards and identify all the things that would be different in their family, in their job, in their activities, in their house, in their finances. Work backwards and figure out the baby steps to get them from point A, which is where they're at right now, to point B, which is where they want to be. As they identify these goals, you can also bring up the fact that, you know, I'm not seeing how your current drinking or your drug use or the fact that you're incarcerated every other month fits in with your future goals. With each client, you're going to have to adjust your pacing. Some clients will come in, they'll be somewhat ambivalent. You'll say something, they'll have an aha moment, and they'll start working, and they'll go like gangbusters. Other clients, it's like moving a 2,000-pound mule, and you just have to stay there. And one of the things that a friend said to me who has a mule is that you have to convince the mule that it's safe to move. They're evaluating what's going on. What's the benefit in me moving? And is it in my best interest? A lot of clients don't know any other way but the way that they've been doing. So they're sitting there going, well, I could move forward, but I have no idea where that's going to land me and if it's going to be any better or worse than my current situation. So helping them see slowly what could be better, helping, helping them slowly build the foundation so they're just not stepping out off a cliff and going, well, let's just try a whole different life. Change people, places, things, get a new job. It's not going to happen. People don't just all of a sudden do a 180 and mold into a new life. Work with them. Encourage them. The more ingrained and entrenched they are in the old behaviors, the more rewards that exist for the old behaviors, their friends. They may have a certain amount of status among their friends, among their peer group. 
They may not have to do things that they don't like to do. There's a lot of rewards that we tend to discount when we look at, you know, why is John doing this? This is especially true of drug dealing. And there's, there's, it's hard to see what the huge big deal is because a lot of drug dealers really don't make that much money. But it's a sense of security. It's a sense of power. It's a sense of control. It's their peer group. There's a lot of things that feed into that that make that lifestyle rewarding. Throughout the process, whether you've got the mule or the motivated person who's just going like gangbusters, you need to have personal contact, phone calls, especially for missed appointments. If you know that a particular date is coming up, like a court hearing or a custody hearing or a doctor's appointment um, or something that might be meaningful or troublesome for your client, give them a phone call. doesn't have to be a long one, just a checking in to see how your thing went. This is especially important early on in treatment. You don't want to do this to the point of developing a dependency where they think that you're like hovering over them and making sure that they don't collapse into a little blithering ball. That just completely disempowers them. But you do want them to know that they're important and you're paying attention to things that might be going on in their life that are meaningful for them. There are six basic stages in the process of change. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and recurrence. As I said before, whether you're making a New Year's resolution or you're going into treatment, you're probably not going to just step through these in a linear fashion, not going back and forth based on comfort and motivation levels. And nobody goes through at the same rate. So whether you're the mule or you're the tornado or sprinter or whatever you want to say, you have to treat each person individually in how you address each stage. By the same token, there's a certain element of not going so fast that you skim over everything. We would regularly have people in 30-day treatment, mind you, 30-day residential, who would proclaim to me right before they were getting ready to leave treatment that they completed all 12 of their steps. And I'd say, no, no, I'm not thinking you did. I'm thinking you need to go back to one. You may have read the steps, but you sure didn't work the steps. So having them go back and really take a look and ponder and absorb and digest and any other verbs you want to use, each step of the recovery process is important. The tendency is to skim over the things that are painful. And unfortunately, the things that are painful are the things that are going to bring them back to treatment. We can help them at any stage using different motivational approaches. In pre-contemplation, a lot of your clients that come in through the court system, 
they don't even realize they've got a problem. Matter of fact, most of them are willing to tell you they surely don't have a problem. So at this stage, you can establish rapport. Okay, you don't have a problem. But I've got a job to do. Raise doubts about patterns of use and give information on risks and the pros and cons of use. And what we used to do with our pre-contemplation slash involuntary clients, we had a set of psychoeducational groups that they had to go through. And I would take the responsibility or the onus or the blame or whatever you want to say for those classes. I, I understand that you don't think you've got a problem. And I don't know you. All I have is the, what I have right here that says that there might be a problem. So because of this, you're going to have to go through the groups. I don't have a choice. Here's how we can get through it together in the least painful manner possible. So pre presenting the information as I'm not saying you're sick and I'm not going to try to beat it into your head that you're sick, but presenting the information in the context of you did these other things and these are the consequences and I'm sorry my hands are tied helps to a certain extent because then they don't feel like each movie is directed at them to try to convince them that they've got a problem, even though it is. So start there. Provide information on pros, risks and have them talk about the pros and cons of their behavior. Provide as many vignettes and case studies and, you know, movies that they can identify with. Anything that might catch their attention and go, ooh, that sounds like me. Those are all going to be helpful. They're likely going to be wary of you. So don't pull a power play. It's not going to get you anywhere except for to get their the fur on their back ruffled or feathers. I guess you read, nah, ruffle feathers. And try to keep an interview format. Ask them a question, get an answer. Try to ask open-ended questions, not questions that are, can be answered with a yes or a no, not rhetorical questions. Try not to be sarcastic. And keep the interview informal. Don't sit there with a lab coat on and a checklist and look at them over the top of your bifocals. That's going to alienate them. Try to be as casual as possible. Help them feel comfortable. Help them feel like you're not trying to pathologize them. Together, you can explore the meaning of the events that brought them to treatment and their perceptions of the problem. So you might say something to the, to the effect of, so tell me what happened that brought you here? Or how did you get to this point? Or why do you think that they referred you for a substance abuse evaluation or a mental health evaluation. Provide factual information. When the officer stopped you, you, you blew a .24. Now, for most people, that's pretty darn intoxicated. Um, explore the pros and cons. Again, there are pros or they wouldn't be doing it. So you have your average pros. You know, my friends are doing it. It's fun to do. It makes me feel good. 
you also need to look beyond those pros. Is the person self-medicating? Is the person trying to escape from something, from a trauma in their past, from some negative thing that's going on right now? Help a significant other intervene. If you're allowed to talk to significant others, if you have a release of information and they want to help, have them present objective information and examine the discrepancies between the client's and others' perceptions of the problem behavior. If I asked your mother or your girlfriend or your daughter or whatever, your spouse, about your drinking or about your drug use, what would they tell me? And how does that differ from what you're telling me? And I'm wondering why the difference then it's express concern and keep the door open. Present the information as there are always two sides to every story. There are always two sides to every event. And you understand that their significant other may be blowing things a little bit out of proportion. But you also understand that in any event or in any situation, there's an element of truth in both sides. So you're wondering where the middle ground is, what the real situation is going to pan out to be. Many clients are ambivalent about change because it's hard. It hurts. Change causes crisis, and crisis causes change. If you are motivated enough to change, that means the costs have suddenly begun to outweigh the benefits of whatever you were doing. That's not pleasant. So once those costs are raised, then it's a matter of sort of fighting upstream to get to the benefits of the new behavior. One of our jobs is to help clients rapidly experience the benefits of their new behavior. Make sure they have frequent successes. Make sure there are plenty of social rewards. Make sure you're noticing what they're doing, noting on their progress, affirming. One of the ways you'll observe ambivalence is your yes but client. Anytime you're talking about something, they are going to yes but you. Yes, I could do that, but they'll argue. They'll discount what you have to say. They'll interrupt you. In group settings, they often interrupt the whole group and disrupt things. They may blame, disagree, excuse, or minimize their behavior. Well, you would have done it too if you were in my situation. Or they may just plumb ignore you. These are the clients that sit in the back of the group and fall asleep or don't pay any attention or doodle or again, are disruptive and talking to their neighbor, go to the bathroom every five minutes. So there are multiple ways you can respond to these situations and help them work through their ambivalence. You can just rephrase the statement neutrally. You can exaggerate the statement without sarcasm, or you can acknowledge the statement but point out how that contradicts something they said earlier. Or finally, you can agree, but kind of throw a twist in it to make them think about, well, how is what they're saying right? 
Some clients will present in contemplation or you have clients that start in pre-contemplation and you can move them towards contemplation. Once they're in the contemplation stage, they're saying, you know, okay, well, maybe there might be a problem, but I got it under control. I don't need your help. The client at this point is somewhat ambivalent about changing. They kind of recognize that there's a problem, but they also aren't really ready to give up the addiction. At this stage, the client will usually meet you halfway and is willing to at least consider the cons of using. Now, if you don't look at the pros of using with him or her, then you're going to alienate them. You need to look at the pros and cons of using and don't come off as sounding judgmental or preachy. That will just turn them off right away. Reassure them that no one can force them to change, which we all know is true. They have to be ready to change for themselves. And ask questions of them that prompt motivation. For example, in the past, when you've wanted to keep up your motiva motivation, what have you told yourself? You can also ask them questions such as, if you decide that you want to stop using what do you think the benefits will be? What types of things might help you stay motivated? And have them brainstorm a list. It's your job at this point to help the client recognize the problem in its entirety. Remember, in the last slide, we talked about the fact that they're ambivalent about change. They might be willing to acknowledge that they're drinking too much. But we need to go from that, yeah, I, I admit I drink too much, to I have a problem. Help the client acknowledge their concern, but also normalize it. It doesn't mean you're crazy. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're completely helpless. Much to the contrary, there is a lot of strength to be found in recovery. Help the client generate their intentions to change. So once they have admitted there's a problem and come to the realization that something needs to change, then help them figure out how they're going to do it and what's going to keep them motivated. And then help them develop optimism. It's a hard road, and we would be fooling them and setting them up for failure if we made it seem like a walk in the park. But help them generate optimism. Help them look at their strengths help them look at prior difficult things that they've done and succeeded at. Help them look at the positives that will come out of this change. Provide feedback to them about their communication. Maybe their words, their verbal communication says they're ready to change, but their nonverbal communication, not so much. If they look like they're ready, convey that to them. If they are meeting you with the yes but syndrome, let them know. You know, I hear you telling me that you want to change, yet every time we start to brainstorm the next step you need to take, you have a rationalization or a yes but. So let's talk about what that's about. Help clients see a difference 
as they go through treatment, contemplation doesn't just last one day. You don't have a session, clients in contemplation, and poof, you move them to the next stage. No, this is an ongoing process. So over the next few sessions, you're going to provide feedback to the clients about what you're seeing, how you're seeing them prepare mentally, socially, physically for the upcoming changes. Provide positive feedback about how you see them getting stronger or you see more dedication or whatever else. Convey empathy. Let them know that you know it's hard and that it takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to make this change. When they start getting antsy, wondering if they can actually do it, or thinking it's too hard, those are times to revisit the hard times that they've gotten through before, the strengths that they've ha they have, and strengths that they have that they may not even think to apply to this problem. Are they ingenious? Are they creative? Are they social? Are they whatever? Talk with them about what could help them get through this. If they woke up tomorrow and they were feeling better about this situation, what would be different? They would have more friends to talk to. They would have somebody that would understand. Um, something might change at their job. It's hard for me to even guess what their response might be. But use the miracle question whenever you need to help them look into the future, whenever you need to help them see what's going to be different for the positive. And reframe negative statements. Don't negate their statements. If they say, I can't do this, and you come back with, yes, you can, that's not reframing. If they say, I feel like a failure, you can reframe that and 